Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Before we get into tonight's topic, I want to extend my gratitude to those of you who have donated to the Three Moves Ahead Patreon. Uh, It's been live for less than a week as of recording, and we're nearly at 600 a month. It's a huge help to us, and a relief to me personally to be able to count on Three Moves Ahead as a small source of revenue. Uh, You know, I'm a full-time freelancer, which already means my income can be a little unstable, or a lot unstable, due to the vagaries of freelance work and client payment schedules. Uh, So backing 3MA helps uh, cover the time I spend hosting and organizing the show, and it also gives me some much-appreciated peace of mind. Uh, So please know you have my personal gratitude, as well as the gratitude of all of us who work on the show. Uh, If this is the first you're hearing about this, you can find our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, But, you know, people aren't just backing us to hear our gratitude, so with that, we turn to today's show, where, once again, I'm joined by Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Good evening, everyone. We also welcome our friend, Martin Glode, who some of you may know as Quill18 on YouTube. Hey, folks. Good to be here. Uh, So, today we're going to be revisiting Civilization Beyond Earth in light of the new Rising Tide expansion. Uh, Beyond Earth got kind of a rough ride when it came out, and I certainly wasn't much of a fan myself. So, the question... Oh, God, this is unforgivable, but you'll have to forgive me. The question is whether Rising Tide can really float our boats. Oh, my (laughs) God. I'm so sorry. Is that I, what we're going to do today? I, Make I, I'm puns? just going to go shut down the Patreon, actually, right now. <laughs> this uh, no. is why no so, one asked you to review the game, right? Because they knew you would say <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly. Well, somebody did, actually, and I just, I just turned in uh, a thousand words of, of, nautical, uh, of nautical puns. Oh, God. Uh, and I haven't gotten work since. Uh, so, Martin, you've probably put in more time on Rising Tide than we have since I think I saw you were, you were playing it pre-release. Uh, so before we dive into our, into our reactions, uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about like what is Rising Tide and in terms of features, uh, what what complaints is it trying to address? Yeah, so I actually played Rising Tide quite a few months before the release. Uh, 2K actually flew me out to their California offices, and I was able to spend a day uh, playing. This was before they'd announced all of factions as well. I played as the um, the NSA before they denounced it, and it was a great opportunity to talk to the different developers and get some ideas as to what they were hoping to do with Rising Tide. And I know one of the things that um, the developers had sort of done a big sort of mea culpa about after the release of Beyond Earth in the first place was the idea that they didn't take the game far enough away from Civ V, which is always a hard question when you have a successful franchise and you're trying to make a spin on it, how much do you change things up? And it was... The developers had come to the conclusion, along with most of the audience, I think, that they probably hadn't made enough changes. And I think Rising Tide was looking to address some of that, uh, especially with the uh, the new diplomacy model and, of course, the, the sort of flagship component of the expansion, which is the Aquatic Cities. Yeah, and... Uh... When it comes to you and Beyond Earth, what was what was your take on Beyond Earth before before Rising Tide? Like, were, were you like a lot of the rest of us? Where were did you share the complaints you just listed that it was a little too conservative, uh, not sci-fi enough? Yeah, that's probably the case. I mean, one of the complaints that a lot of people leveled at the game was that it was just a reskinning of Civ Five, which I honestly think is a relatively kind of an ignorant complaint to label at something because it's the same engine, yet it's still going to be turn-based and hexes, there's still going to be cities. I mean, that's sort of like saying that Alpha Centauri was a reskin of Civilization, which it was and also clearly wasn't. And the question is just... Does Beyond Earth change things enough? It had a sci-fi feel. To me, I think things felt alien enough. Um, but I think what I 
I think the developers, I think there's two parts to the equation. I'm sure I'm going to be talking about this a lot today is I think there were both design and sort of execution failures when it came to Beyond Earth. And I think one of the things that it lost is some of the magic that Civ 5 has. I mean, Beyond Earth is a, in a crappy situation is that it's got to compete with Civ 5. And people will always ask me, like, is Beyond Earth better than Civ 5? That's almost impossible to do. Civ 5 is a fantastic game. The question is, is Beyond Earth interesting enough that you might want to play it alongside of Civ 5? Because it's not a sequel, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, that should be pretty clear, I think. Right. So I think some of the magic came, lost, I think some of the magic from Beyond Earth was lost in that uh, one of the things right away was there's just not enough leaders, right? They went through all this extra work to make these animated leader portraits that would change based on affinity levels, for example, which is kind of a neat idea, but then doesn't actually add that much to the gameplay. And as a result, it's much more sort of cost uh, costly in terms of development time to add more leaders to a game so that when Beyond Earth originally shipped, it only had eight leaders, which is how many people you have in a standard size game, which meant every single game had every single exact same leader every single time. And one of the joys of Civ is exploring and finding out who the hell your neighbors are going to be. Yeah. Oh my god, Montezuma's in this game. Well, that's going to dramatically transform the gameplay. So I think that fell a little short. And despite the fact that there were so few leaders, I felt like somehow their personality didn't really shine through. Again, if I'm going to compare it to Alpha Centauri, mm -hmm. uh, the leaders there were really, really really quite interesting and had a lot of life. And I, I think maybe the quotes helped it in that game. And I, I don't know what it was, but beyond earth, the leaders tended to fall flat and there weren't enough of them. So that's well, complaint number one. Yeah. I, I think part of that is uh, definitely, uh, definitely partly that's down to writing uh, and, and performance. Like you, like, among strategy gamers, people can still quote like chapter and verse from like Mobuta K. Morgan exactly. uh, and stuff like that. Like there are quotes people have like nailed down because it's just so memorable. And the other issue there is uh, Beyond Earth was trying trying to let you sort of choose your own path and sort of this choose your own adventure. You're not just because you picked a faction, you're not railroaded into playing that faction a certain way but that also means that you can't assign really strong personalities to any of the leaders because they all have to have the capacity to turn into an insane you know techno warmonger or uh some sort of like gaian earth mothery let's let's become uh you know aliens on this on this new planet let's become one with the planet they all have to be able to do that which also then means like you just don't get that sense of when this person shows up here's here's the program they're running here's what they're bringing to the table and it, it kind of felt like you know again to go back to Alpha Centauri Alpha Centauri was you know the same cast of characters every time uh, taking a premise and then you see how it would play out differently each time it was it was a lot of fun in that regard and and, and beyond earth didn't end up satisfying uh, on on that score uh so how they how they tried to address this in in rising tide well right away they added four new leaders and i think that actually does make a pretty significant difference because now we're talking about a pool of 12 leaders and again a standard game will have eight so you get a little bit of variety over there i think the new leaders came in with a good deal of personality they're quite cool um and the other thing they added which was pretty nice is as you play you get these little pop-ups at the top of the screen where the leaders are actually commenting on your situation in the game you've got an impressive military oh you're expanding a lot that's kind of freaky oh you're you're not very nice to the wildlife and as well as assigning to that uh, a fear and respect point system which ties into the new diplomacy model and 
for me, I really thought that was quite cool the first time I'm, I've seen it. I don't know how much of a difference it makes sort of in, in the long run, in the replayability. Um, I've only played, you know, a handful of games of Rising Tide at this point, but I, to me, it seemed like a really neat thing, and I think it added a bit more personality to the characters. Although, again, all the leaders do feel a little bit generic. Uh, one of the things in Alpha Centauri, like the Morganites you were just saying, you knew those guys were going to be big energy, you know, money banker type people no matter what and you knew that um you knew that the uh, oh the military person i can't remember spartans. starts with an s yeah the Santiago. spartans yeah were uh going to be very very militaristic and you knew that miriam godwinson was going to be well the someone worst. you wanted to kill first just every the game. worst <laughs> absolutely so there's still not a big differentiation between the different characters which is too bad the lore if you read the backstory is interesting but i don't think it really comes through in the game I think that's one of the general problems with uh, Beyond Earth, and I think this is still in Rising Tide, which is it does make it make some good changes to the game. It does, it is certainly a step up from where Beyond Earth was. I, this is going to my first comment is going to be negative, and I'm still not entirely sold on on Rising Tide, but there are some good things uh, we'll get to in a bit. But I don't think it it really still is. I think we used the word beige a lot in our first podcast on it. Just how beige and bland the world seemed uh, because you don't have strong personalities and the lore really doesn't come through and really every strategy generally comes down to building an army after you go on this massive bug hunt and rising tide does you the favor of expanding that endless bug hunt to the ocean it's like great so i'm captain ahab now going after every single fish i can find because to take to the waters where these great resources are, I now have to be an exterminator down there too. Um, so I'll, it repeats some of the problems. Some of the core, I think, design problems uh, in Beyond Earth aren't quite helped. However, the diplomacy section, the diplomacy, I think, is improved dramatically just, so much. just through um, attitudes and different types of treaties where you can have mutual assistance pacts based on how you like them and have cooperation. And there's a little bit more feedback and interaction, still not as much as I would like. Still, it seems like you can play pretty much a strong solo game and just, you know, pick and choose which treaties you want to have and not really engage with the other parties or consider them as strategic partners in any way, as much as just other people on the planet with you, uh, which is, I think, a big problem with the game. But the interface is better the options are better um this idea of diplomatic capital uh that you can use is better um so that one aspect of the game has been improved greatly um but still has you know the beige personalities whereas you know as rob said they're kind of designed so they can take on all of these different affinities now you have hybrid affinities as well which i still have not quite figured out what the hell is going on there um and the fact that they take on all these different affinities, they still seem like, you know, I was talking to my friend Holly Green on Twitter last week, and I said, look, it seems like I'm supposed to hate this guy because he's Australian, because that's the only thing about him that's recognizable, because <laughs> his affinity doesn't come through. And nothing about his affinity choices and the way he attacks me for my affinity choices never seems as sincere as his stupid Australianness. Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, but the, but the diplomacy is greatly improved. Uh, I totally agree with you that the diplomacy is a lot better, and I think it's so much more fun. I like the diplomatic capital. I like the trade, sy the trade system. Mm -hmm. But 
I think to expand on the beigeness and also to tie back into your statement about the bug hunt, one of the things that has always been an issue in Beyond Earth and hasn't been fixed in Rising Tide is even if you go Harmony, there's no reason not to go bug hunting. In fact, if you go Harmony, you're likely near Xenomass, which means the alien bugs are going to become more of a problem, so you're more incentivized to go kill them. It's, it makes no sense whatsoever. What's what's harmonic about that? Yeah, and like I have tried, because you, you do sort of draw aggro levels from, from the planet, but even when I'm trying to... Even when I'm trying to remain in peace and harmony with the planet, the problem is there's just too many bugs on the map for me not to eventually be like, you know what, these the, like this has just become an obstacle to me playing the game. You know what I mean? Like I have a quest that says I need to go have an expedition uh, to go like recover an artifact. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need to go in there, and I have a couple monsters that keep like moving onto that hex and off of it. So they got to go. And like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of games where like after the early phases, um, you know, I am just surrounded by, by, by aliens. And I just, just to be able to do basic things, like get my workers out on the map to get my, to get my improvements. I eventually just have to go and like wage these extermination campaigns, which to be fair, I don't mind doing that. Like fighting some of the the big colossal aliens is still kind of fun, and there's some there's some cool ones uh, in in Rising Tide. I've got uh, a a really freakish, terrifying like coral growth, uh, like walled walling me into a bay uh, on this on this one game I'm currently playing. So that's it, it's kind of fun waging these campaigns to get rid of these things, but at the same time. Uh, it also means like the game sort of suggests that having a certain relationship or interacting with the aliens in a certain way will affect uh, the direction of the game and the character of your faction, but then doesn't really support that. Doesn't really give you many options in terms of how you're going to interact. In the end, it's just easier to to go exterminate them. But don't worry, you can you can still get a technology that says you're still down with nature. Yeah, yeah. It's a, one of those sort of, it's telling us instead of showing us that we're uh, copacetic with nature, which is not really a good way to do it. Yeah. I guess, and not to continue to idealize um, Alpha Centauri all the time. No, you're always um, welcome to do that on the show. Yeah, I mean, everyone, of course, loves it. But um, one of the things in there is if you did go with a very nature-oriented gameplay, um, while the aliens were still sort of annoying um, in general, one of the interesting things is, first of all, just attacking the aliens had a great chance of mind controlling them in Alpha Centauri, which meant you still had to fight them, but you weren't really killing them. You were just sort of taming them. And then the other thing is, um, especially later on in the game when you're going with a nature-based gameplay, is you really enjoyed having the fungus around because the fungus became something that gave you massive amounts of food and production, potentially better than clearing the tile and building a farm, for example. So I think it really gave a different feeling to some of the gameplay there and it's something that hasn't really been executed very well in uh, in rising tide uh even in rising tide although certainly better than beyond earth where in beyond earth you'd try to get an alien nest in your borders so you'd be friends with the aliens which was great but first of all they still got in your way and secondly if ever you accidentally you know walked across the alien nest it would destroy it and all that work trying to tame the aliens would go away that has been improved in Rising Tide because you have to explicitly pillage a tile, um, and you, there's a certain ability to have, um, I think your non-military units can walk through aliens and stack with them. I'm not sure about that, but I, I think that got changed, didn't it? That, that, might be, 
that getting I, confused. I, that I don't think. I just, I just, that, I just, that wasn't my I just experience. kill on sight, so. Yeah, it's just way easier if you do because they they're not they're not difficult. They're just annoying. They get in your way. Yeah, yeah it's it, well, especially because like. Civilization Five is is always that 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 system has always been a place where like map congestion is an issue, uh, and there's also a lot of unusable hexes as it is on the planet in in Beyond Earth, and so like there's just a lot of places where it's like these things these things have to get out of my way. However, I want to talk a little bit about um, let's let's start on the diplomacy because mm-hmm. I really do think this is this is an exciting system and I think it's really cool uh you know when it it may not totally solve the the personality problem from the standpoint of uh creating characters that are as memorable and uh you have a you have an emotional reaction to them the way you do in Alpha Centauri on the other hand though you have so much more context in this diplomatic system than you used mm-hmm. to it feels so much more understandable and like it makes more intuitive sense and it feels more like a real diplomatic relationship and i have to say like i was not expecting the system to be overhauled as much as this has been and i'm really liking it well diplomacy is hard a good diplomatic system it's something we talk about a lot on the show is how much we'd like a good diplomatic system um and there just aren't that many that really really stand out and i don't think this is going to go down in like strategy game history as one of the best ever but i think it will go down as kind of a surprise improvement because things were so bleak um and you know kind of nothing uh, in beyond earth that this is really a noticeable step up in so many ways um it does take it's it's creative in how it tried to fix the problems uh with diplomacy it does things that you know you sort of see in other games but really not in this way i think if that makes sense yeah, absolutely. Like the whole, um, like the how you can control your ad the, your attitude towards another country, and you can set your stance uh, towards it. Are we going to be cooperative? Or are we going to be hostile? And they'll give you this chance. You can spend your points, and that kind of sends a signal. It's kind of equivalent to the diplomacy. Are we going to sign the treaty of Fra- the civilization? Are you going to be my friend? Treaty only yeah. is a little bit more mathematical i think it fits more with the theme and it even if if it serves the same purpose as that silly little civ kumbaya friendship treaty it doesn't evoke that it doesn't remind people of that necessarily even if it's serving the same purpose so it gets around that oh this is just civ again skinning idea yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Civ Five, the main purpose of signing a friendship agreement was so that you could, well, get flat gold and deals, but also sign research agreements. Yeah. Since research agreements weren't a thing in Beyond Earth, it didn't fit properly at first. But now it's actually, it's almost more significant than anything in Civ Five because first of all, you have to impl- um, invest diplomatic capital to yeah. raise your relationship unless the AI proposes it. You also have to make sure your fear and respect is high enough to get to those higher levels. And then what it enables is mu- getting much more value out of the trait-based agreements, some of which are very, very potent. So it actually becomes a, a lot more of a calculated choice, uh, certainly than it was in v- uh, vanilla BE, and starting to be quite as important as as diplomacy in Civ Five. Civ Five diplomacy always felt a little bit more important, I think, because of the luxury good system. Your primary right. reason to be 
um, on good terms and to negotiate with other civilizations in Civ Five was because you needed the luxury goods to be traded yeah. back and forth, and that wasn't as much of an issue in Beyond Earth. But now you want if there's if someone has a, an agreement on offer that you really want to take advantage of, you'd ideally like your your status to go all the way up to allied so you can get the biggest benefit from it. Yeah, and I I feel like because of that, because there's so much investment in in these in these relationships like literal now there's there's diplomatic capital it's a new currency in in this game that you are investing in in uh these agreements and developing these relationships uh i think it solves some of the uh, you know ai that turns on a dime on you it makes the it makes the diplomacy system i think a little more predictable and readable in in ways i find uh, in in ways I find nice. Now maybe it doesn't. Maybe it, maybe it takes away too much dynamism, uh, but I I generally like the idea that I can go up to another faction leader, and be like, listen, here's where we stand with each other, right? Like, and just sort of say like, look, this person is a rival. This person I have sort of a peaceable neutrality with, and that that is uh, that is something that like we are putting those relationships in these boxes and those open up these possibilities the other thing i enjoy is that you've got um the the that you can see sort of what's affecting their relation their their their, their impressions of mm -hmm. you uh mm -hmm. so i i like the idea that now they've just come out and said like uh there's what was it fear and respect mm -hmm. um that they're just they've just come out and said like look this is what they think of you, uh, and you're not going to be able to. You can't do what what, what would happen a lot in Civ, where uh, you, you you wouldn't really fully understand like what threshold you're trying to hit uh, in order to impress somebody. Uh, sometimes people just get really dismissive of you, and you weren't entirely clear on like why that was. You just knew you were generally a little weaker, uh, but maybe you didn't know how much. Here, it just comes out and says like, listen. This person both respects and fears you, so you can, you know, you can, you can set the tone of the relationship however you want. You, the ball's in your court. I like that that's sort of surfaced here. Yeah, and you can see the breakpoints. Like, okay, you want to get allied with this person? Well, you're going to need a respect rating of six and a fear, or a fear of five. And that is one thing that varies depending on the leader, which is nice. Like for Brazil, um, you need, I think, a lot more fear to be able to cow them into an alliance because they're a bit more militaristic and they're not as easily... Uh, impressed. Uh, one thing I wasn't able to track does do those values change depending on like your affinities, right? Because this is because I wasn't like basically if you if you're if you're adopting harmony, right, mm -hmm. and someone else has gone supremacy, does that change what the investment required in the diplomatic system for changing your stance? I could absolutely be wrong, but I don't think that the target numbers change. But I think you gain and lose respect based on your affinity of differences. So I think if you have a okay. similar affinity, I think you get a bonus to your respect. I don't think it changes the breakpoints, but I'm actually not sure. Yeah. Uh, but but it, just in general, I think it does just create the sense that now, now it's not basically, they're just other players with different skins on them, which is how I absolutely felt for a mm -hmm. lot of uh, Beyond Earth, Vanilla Beyond Earth. I absolutely felt like we might as all well have been like blank question marks uh, sort of interacting with each other like blank portraits. Uh, here it starts to feel like, yeah, we do have the, the we we do have these interactions now. We have some character, and that also ties into the fact that um, they may not have successfully imbued 
each faction with a a super strong identity like this is this is their governing principle this is what they're all about but the fact that you can now customize uh the factions quite a bit and sort of develop uh their you know sort of their their skill tree as it were uh i think does go some way to ameliorating those problems we had with the with the idea that these factions were fundamentally interchangeable Mm -hmm. now yeah they may start somewhat interchangeable but they have so many decisions they can make along the way that take them in completely different directions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for example, playing as the Shang Tsu, the Korean faction, um, which has a sort of innate bonus every time you succeed in a spy mission, means I will set up my affinities to be super mega spy oriented, which is something that I'd never do uh, running any of the other f- uh, factions or sponsors. So it feels significantly different playing as that faction than some of the others, not because of anything necessarily built into it, but the decisions that it leads me to take, which is nice to see. But you still, I still don't get much of a sense of how the uh, affinity choices are affecting the players around me. Um, it's not quite clear necessarily if they're going harmony or if they're going military until they come and scold me for not following their special path of life. Um, I can, it's certainly better now. I can see how the choices I'm making my affinity affect what I do, but it's not quite clear how the affinity choices of my neighbors affect what, how they're going to be approaching me. Certainly not in the same way that, say, social policies do in Civ Five or civics uh, did in Civ Four. Um, there's still that sense that there's this that this is a separate game, that the affinities are a game people are playing by themselves. And they don't really affect how the other players interact with me. They can affect how I interact with the other players, but that's really just me playing with stuff. That's not the AI necessarily doing anything with it. Now, maybe that's, maybe I'm just being stuck on bad maps. Maybe I'm just too awesome and frightening and people don't <laughs> deal with me uh, quite so well. But I still have the sense that the affinities are kind of this still not fully thought out track for the different civilizations to be on. And it doesn't quite to be, doesn't quite to be enough, be enough feedback for me as to how that is affecting the game around me beyond, Oh, somebody's close to a victory condition or these guys are supremacy in your harmony. Therefore they're going to come and scold you, even though you ha- actually do have more, uh, quite a few points in supremacy as well, but they just don't notice because you have that one point in harmony because my, my asthma can suck it. And so you need that harmony. Um, I still, is it just me? Am I missing something? Or they... Oh, I agree with you completely. Uh, the non-interactivity of Beyond Earth is one of the big bullet points I had in my notes to discuss today, and I think it goes well beyond um, the victory, or not well beyond just the affinities. One of the major ones is victory conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk, if you look at Civ Five, there are a lot of things that happen in Civ Five where you are very affected by your neighbor. For example, mm-hmm. if you want to pursue a religious game and your neighbor is also playing a religious game, then there's going to be a lot of conflict as you're trying to get your yeah. missionaries back and forth. But the victory conditions are also like that in Civ Five. Um, a cultural victory, uh, whereas it used to just sort of uh, in at release in Civ Five was what like get three legendary cities or something or or you know something. Uh, no, no. In um, yeah, yeah, Civ Five was get create, com- get to, complete all the complete, social yeah, policies, complete all these things, and then build a utopia. And then do the thing. utopia, part. right? 
Right. So that would be a great example of a non-interactive sort of beyonder style of victory that kind of sucks. Whereas now with the tourism versus culture, you've got ways of fighting back in really interesting ways. And then the, um, the diplomatic victory in the World Congress, that's again, very interactive as you sort of fight over control of city-states. None of the victory conditions in Beyond Earth save um, domination involves interacting with your neighbor at all. You could literally be in a bubble and it would change nothing about the victory conditions. And that's terrible. Yeah, and this is a, in a weird way. I, I think the the improved diplomacy or the or the greater options you have via diplomacy also end up sort of encouraging. This is weird. Also end up encouraging weird bubble like play, where like why do I want to go and like have a border like a a big border with this person or like conquer them when really we could just farm this agreement and I'm getting all this extra culture and I don't really care what they're doing. Because I'm playing, you know, I'm I'm playing the culture game, uh, basically, and I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna unlock, I'm, I'm just gonna unlock these trees and and and, and power and, and run up the uh, run up the run up the uh, tree these these skill trees, uh, the social policies, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of times in these games I sort of have to fight my own tendency just to sort of watch the numbers roll in, basically watch the numbers tick up. Uh, because it just doesn't seem worth it to go out there and like, uh, why do I need, why do I need territory? Like maybe there's a couple resources I need out on the map, but I don't need to go like, I don't need a, I don't need a stronger, like strategic position. I don't need to, you know, prepare for a war. It's better to, uh, you know, just sort of farm these relationships for, for how it affects my game, uh, which ends up giving it this weird, um, almost like bad Euro game Hmm. feel. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's 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 yeah. almost like uh, we're playing uh, Civilization Agricola, uh, where we we are having sort of interactions, but by and large we can all be it, the game really encourages you to sort of be really inward looking. Yeah, absolutely, I completely agree, and I, it's part and parcel of the lack of flavor in Beyond Earth. It's just it's ninety percent of the way there, but that last ten percent, that extra little juice that's gotta go in there makes a really big difference into how the game feels. It's like uh, another example I like to say is I feel like the the wonders in Beyond Earth are just sort of neutered and boring. It, it can be so dramatic to get a world wonder in Civ, in classic Civ. And part of the reason is because they're historical, right? It's a big yeah. deal like, haha, I built the pyramids in New York. There's something very cool about that. But I also feel like the wonders in Civ Five or any of the Civs in the past were considerably more dramatic than the state of them in Beyond Earth. They've almost been like, overly balanced so that nothing breaks the game too much like i've got uh, one of the wiki pages in front of me right now for like the arma sale takes tons of production eats up five of your floatstone and the bonus is that the city that you built it in takes 50 percent less damage from range attacks who cares and really that's my yeah. my position on 95 percent of the wonders in beyond earth who cares yeah the, that's i feel like there's a fair number of policies that also like give you bonuses that's like yeah but if that but if that comes up, I've I've basically screwed up badly. Like the you know, there's there's a lot of cases in this game where it's like, hey, here's here's a bonus that will come into uh, that will come into play if basically you've somehow taken yourself out of this game. You know, have fun with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the 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 wonders. I I think yeah, they they did lack character, but then also they they weren't they weren't dramatic enough, and I and I also think like. Just from just from an interface standpoint, just the way things are represented, uh, when you're when you're going through that tech tray 
uh, which the tech web, uh, mm-hmm. which is still kind of uh, kind of hard to read. Uh, the wonders don't really jump out at you. You have to really scrutinize because also because a lot of their bonuses are also really really like small like they're, they're kind of small bore wonders, right? So you're you're kind of like trying to figure out like you know here here are my regular buildings and then here's a slightly bigger building basically with a slightly more you know uh intricate bonus uh but but they don't but they they don't have that feeling of uh you're not rubbing your hands together and They're saying once I get yeah <laughs> yeah you're not you're not like I'm going to chain these together and then I'm gonna, then then it's my game to lose uh so yeah that's definitely that, that definitely remains something of an issue and it's something I it was something I hoped that uh rising tide would address somewhat is just you know you need to address a little bit of the flavor with the factions but then also you need to create uh this greater sense of excitement around the wonders and it just it, that that part of the game still beyond earth but back to the tech web i'm so glad they finally cleaned it up Oh God! Yes. Now that I actually know what those icons are and different things are colored, and I saw that I was just so happy. Then it occurred to me: wait a minute, they could have just done this in a patch. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of stuff. Like I mean, that. it's like you know, this is such a great idea, but where? Because the old, if you remember, Beyond Earth listeners, the, the web. I like the idea of the web of tech and how you can go in all these different directions. It's not this pseudo linear progress model necessarily of civilization but all of the icons had the exact same color pretty much the same shape and knowing what was a wonder or what was a special unit power or what unlocked a specific type of affinity Mm -hmm. thing was not always really clear and they finally cleaned it up now i know what different things are so i can get to wonders more easily so i can play a wonder game if i cared about wonders at all but it's and it's such a massive, huge improvement that could have been done in a patch. There were like two things in Beyond Earth that I think uh, people modded in like the first day or the first yeah. week. One was adding color to the tech web. The other was making trade routes goddamn sortable oh, by yes. you know energy or science. And it's so ludicrous. Like again, when I went to California. Um, to get the Rising Tide preview a couple months before it came out, I brought up, like, why can't we sort these trade routes? And he looked at me like, what a weird, bizarre request to put in. I don't know. You know, programming is kind of tricky. I'm like, this is built. Civ 5 has sortable trade routes based on, you know, highest gold uh, revenue. Yep. And people have modded this into Rising Tide. How could not, this not be a thing? And I actually, they, they called um, uh, 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 Will Miller, right? Yes. Um, uh, right there with me around to like pitch the idea to him. And I was really hoping when I finally got my, my actual sort of preview review copy that this would be in there. And it wasn't in there yet. Now, as it turns out, they did patch that in about a week after a release. But it seems so weird. That's really sort of an execution failure there. The other thing that was broken at release was um, the peace treaty system. You could basically never peace out once a war started. And that was like that in the game when I played it a couple of months before release. And clearly the version they shipped was not done and um they did patch that in again that that week that patch after uh, a week after release but they patch so infrequently and i gotta think there's some sort of like weird management bottleneck i mean as a computer programmer myself i always blame management so that's what i'm gonna <laughs> say there it's obviously the higher ups somewhere somewhere absolutely is. would fix this if they could well some of these things are literally like two yeah. hours 
to patch. I mean, yes, yeah. there's a QA process, obviously, but that legitimately takes some time. But it, we're not talking about months and months and months to make a sortable trade route system. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, especially because, like, so much of this game, like, this this game in particular really drives home, like, hey, there's a trade system. You should really be trading. Like, there's a big thing for every time a new um, a new outpost appears uh, for, for, for you oh, the, to trade. The trade with. stations, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, you know, it brings the game to a screeching halt to show you this new to, to show you this new station, mm-hmm. and then the game is sort of surprised when you trade extensively. Well, they nerfed the number of trade routes you would get um, in an early patch for Vanilla Beyond Earth because people were complaining that trade route trade route management was too much of a pain in the butt, um, and I blame the lack of sorting. Their solution was to reduce the number of trade routes you yeah. had. And then eventually patch in a checkbox, which is on by default, to automatically repeat a trade route, which I personally hate because when a trade route expires, I don't want it to renew the same trade route necessarily. I want to make sure I'm always picking the best route at yes. that yeah. time. And it was like, it just seemed like a phenomenal example of not getting it, not understanding yeah. the problem and not understanding the correct fix. Can we talk about underwater cities? Yes, yes, that was that was going to be the thing I wanted to ask everyone about. Troy, go. This was a joke probably made a thousand times when this game came out on Twitter, but I loved it every time. Nobody likes water levels. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of, it's like, I just don't understand why this was the, I'm, I guess they're okay. It's great that they can use more of the map because, you know, as, as we've said here tonight, you know, the maps are sometimes crowded and there's a lot of useless land on them um so the fact that you can build underwater cities but puts more of the map in play the irrelevance of a naval game is something we've complained about in so many uh 4x games so this Mm -hmm. brings the naval game uh into play in you know important ways but my god do i hate settling underwater cities it's it's just and there's there's some weird design decisions for them. the fact you can do them that's great and you have to put them on continental shelves until you got a right tack and then you can do deep water i guess and of course you still have aliens you've got to clean out so you settle your city around all these rich resources and naturally their borders don't grow unless you move the city through some i yeah. guess mm-hmm. magic atlantean technology that allows you to put your entire city on a crawler that, you know, moves in directions. And I've found it much easier to just buy up the tiles I want. Mm. Why would I bother moving a city, which takes forever when I can just save up the money? Uh, Because it seems to be money seems a lot easier to come by in rising tide. uh, Well, in particular, aquatic cities do tend to be more energy rich, but on the the flip side, I think they're more mm, food poor. No production poor. Not great for production, but I can just buy up the tiles I want, so mm-hmm. I don't really need to move my cities. So that entire mechanic seems kind of wasted and silly, as well as illogical and ascientific. Uh, and it just and because there are so many aliens in the water, um, if I'm going to be fighting them, I've got more options to fight them on land than I do in the sea, because I can use soldiers and gunboats to attack aliens along the coast. I can't use my soldiers in the water. Uh, So just let them do their thing. Um, I've never... It's a feature that I don't think worked well in Alpha Centauri, 
No, they were. It was. It was. It was legitimately terrible in, in Alpha Centauri. In that expansion, which was a legitimately, ter- we should do a show on bad expansions to great games, because <laughs> that is a terrible expansion to a great game. Yeah. Wow. Well, You're going to get some hate mail for that. I've. Yeah, we get lots of hate mail. It's just, well, that's not a problem. The Aquatic Cities didn't come with uh, the expansion in Alpha Centauri. They were there from. They were there from day oh, one. That's right. But they came with all the disadvantages of you have no production right. and. Like to this day, I still don't understand why I really would have built. Maybe I built one just as like basically a floating aircraft carrier. I think I, think out I associated there. with the expansion because I think one of the new factions, one of the pirate factions, I think in Alpha Centauri was really aquatic based. They started in the water, yes. which was what was new. That's why I associate them with the expansion. But thank you for the reaction. So I think this is just an idea that is what that, that kind of sounds cool. But it seems like not just a, I mean, it's not cool enough to be an optimal strategy, I think, most of the time, unless you're, you know, backed into a corner on a peninsula or you're in an archipelago map. And anybody who knows me and how I play Civ, I see an archipelago map, unless I'm Polynesia, I'm starting over. <laughs> see, it's funny because I sort of feel like the opposite. I yeah. actually, it's it, not so much that the aquatic cities are, are in themselves that strong, but I think I have a much easier time on the water map. By virtue of the fact that the AI is so horrible at naval warfare still. Yes. Like the yeah. fact that they don't get to take advantage of just happening to have a city in a bottlenecked area. Now they're in the middle of an ocean. I find the game incredibly trivial with um, being able to hit all their cities either at sea or on the coast with just a bunch of ships. Yeah. I I actually think the floating cities are kind of cool. Okay. I guess I'm disagreeing. I like, like the- I like the flavor of them, and I think it's cool that they have a different mechanic. Yeah, like I kind of like that they move, and and here, like here's the reason you move a city, uh, because they've seeded the they've seeded the ocean with tons of resources. Uh, so like there there actually is a lot of stuff that you will find uh, off the continental shelf that you really it is totally worth it to get a city and like sort of raft it out there. And, uh, and and grab these resources. Uh, so I think it's it's, it's kind of nifty. It's an interesting way for them to uh, con- control space and sort of uh, yeah, sort of like I, I, and that's kind of how I've been using it. Actually, is sort of a way to uh, both control my my coastline uh, and, and maybe sort of like carve out like a little protected piece of ocean for myself, but then also to go out and, uh, you know, harvest all these resource nodes basically that, that I find out on the ocean. So I, I think they, I think they're a little more interesting than that. I, I think they're like, I have been, I have been moved to use them in each of my games, which is something that never happened in Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri, the only, the yeah. only plausible reason I would ever have for building an ocean city was basically to stick an absolute ton of aircraft into it <laughs> and just use it basically it's an air, as it, it, it's an airfield. Yeah, absolutely. So I would just sort of create these chains of, of floating cities out there uh, that were like aircraft carriers that you could not sink. You'd have to storm uh, here. I'm definitely using them as these sort of, uh, yeah, the, the, these ocean going like stations to, to go, to go collect resources. So I kind of like it, but here's the problem. I also feel like it's just kind of a gimmick. It doesn't feel, yeah. it doesn't feel essential 
and I feel like maybe that's maybe that's just the general problem that runs through a lot of of Beyond Earth, as it were, that nothing really feels that yeah, essential. I, mean, I think that's kind of my point. I mean, I, I use them too because they put all those resources out there. So of course I'm going to grab them. But if they didn't put those resources out there, I wouldn't have built the city. The entire purpose of the city is to grab these resources that are there. I don't think anybody was looking at Beyond Earth saying what this game needs is more resources and different ways to gather them. Um, and if you were, then you're much more economically minded than I am. But yeah, it just seems like this is a neat idea. Um, and they had been done before, so why not? And, I mean, if I can play devil's advocate yeah. for a second, what's the purpose of any city in Civ other than to grab resources or to protect a certain amount of space by having a presence there? They, right. they sort of all serve that purpose. In a sense. And so, yeah, the, the aquatic cities maybe are not differentiated enough from the land-based yeah. cities, but maybe the problem is is something else altogether. Land-based cities aren't that interesting either. Hmm. I mean, that's... But, but at that point, we're getting down to the we're getting down to the real brass tacks of why isn't Beyond Earth more interesting, right? Like, why is why is a city an interesting thing to run in Civilization Five, and why is it kind of something you find yourself mentally checking out of a lot in Beyond Earth? It's a it's a great question. I think um, I think people expected a lot more from Beyond Earth in a sense because we have these great memories of Alpha Centauri, um, but I think that there's a reason that most of these four X Civi games tend to be set. In the past, they tend to be historical games because it turns out that's simply more interesting. People like the idea of reliving history. They like the idea of changing history. Uh, Alpha Centauri was really notable because it was a great game at a time when a game development is still, you know, very much a Wild West kind of thing. There was a lot of hit and miss out there and there was a lot of cool stuff. But I think there's a reason, like one of the, the beloved features of Alpha Centauri was the ability to customize your units. As it turns out, most people don't do that in games these days because it's not actually that great of an idea. It sounds cool but then you lack the the sort of distinctive visual design of each of your units because they have to be made more generic and it's a lot more sort of tedium to manage and it turns out to not be that important and i think with beyond earth it's people expected because they have this great memory of alpha centauri but it turns out the setting may just run a little bit counter to the sort of fun that you can have in a 4x game where it turns out a lot of the history is maybe where the fun is and and the balance that comes from that sort of tree-like design i love the idea of a tech web but it might lose something in the in the strength of pure game design by virtue of having a tech web mm, no but i just remember it's another reason that another thing that just bugs me here mm -hmm. and it ties into maybe this is actually why the cities are less interesting why the uh, and especially why the floating cities don't feel as much like as much of a game changer as they should be because beyond earth is fundamentally built on a civilization 5 that tried to once and for all solve the problem of the big empire eventually just can dominate the game by virtue of its sheer size so civilization basically Harrison Bergeron uh, you know, the idea of being a great empire and said, well, if you want to be a big empire, here's here's what you have to take. You become really unable to develop, to, to, to get deeper, as it were. And they really sort of cranked that up to 11, which is fine. It actually makes Civ V uh, certainly a little more... It creates different styles of play and different sorts of strategies so you have to sort of identify you have to marry a play style uh to these game dynamics and, and build them toward toward a victory condition like for example Great. you're talking about like the the happiness system that makes it harder to stay happy if you've got a large empire exactly mm -hmm. 
like they really like it's it, like that that that's actually that's that's the big one right because that really like puts a cap on what you can do uh without importing tons of luxury goods uh and also then having a lot of uh, social policies that will ameliorate uh, the the downside of your size, but even then you're still you're, you're still taking penalties in terms of development. Uh, when you go to Beyond Earth, and now in Rising Tide, you're still fundamentally working within that system that says uh, you really you really don't want too many cities, man. You really want to throttle back, like don't. You, you don't want to grow too quickly. You don't want to be too aggressive about, about getting out there and, and creating new settlements. So here's this alien world, and here's floating cities that you can build. But maybe don't use them too much. And that, I think, maybe is my maybe that's the fundamental problem, is that, like, on the one hand, the, the, the theme of the game is welcome to this crazy alien world, and you can do whatever you want here, and it's a chance to take humanity in all these interesting directions, and now you can have cities that float and move and expand your empire to the oceans, but then you're in a game that is also saying, yeah, but really, dude, you don't want to be... You don't want to have more than, like, four cities, for real, unless you're trying to dominate, unless you're going for domination... Just no, don't don't build too many cities. So even though it's cool to build this floating city, is it really the city you need? And a lot of times the answer is going to be no. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, when people would talk talk about this with Dishonored, uh, a stealth game that had these really cool combat mechanics, but it kind of made you feel bad for using those mechanics. I feel Beyond Earth does that a little bit too. It gives you all these cool ways to sort of interact with this alien world, or it suggests there are these cool ways to interact with this alien world. But then it also kind of has a system that discourages you from from doing that. Yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, Infinite City Sprawl, as it's referred to, has always been a problem in Civ-style games in that you, you don't want to make it so that just spamming out unlimited amounts of cities is the best way to progress because that's not necessarily fun gameplay either. You do want to encourage people to build a bit more vertically and not just blob out like crazy. And every version of Civ has tried its own version of trying to make that work out. Um, and, you know, that's that's something that, that probably needs to be there in some form to, to try to mitigate just blind expansion. But I, I absolutely think you're right that sometimes it feels a bit unfun. In particular, when I switched from Civ 4 to Civ 5, I didn't necessarily like the Civ 5 solution to it. In fact, I think I might still prefer the Civ 4 solution. Mm -hmm. And I think um, this uh, increases the problem of the non-interactivity in Beyond Earth. In Civ 5, yeah, you were a bit limited in size, but there was always already some interesting interactions between you and your neighbors. Uh, plus, the barbarians, I think, were a little bit more entertaining than the aliens. And in Beyond Earth, you just sort of run out of stuff. You can't expand anymore, but at the same time, there's not sort of cool neighborish kind of stuff to do at that point either. And I think that does come into problem. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, if you're not building big empires, you end up having a lot of dead ground between you, and so you don't have that, like, you don't have those... Uh, strategic no man's lands where you're each trying to sort of expand into them and, and get that advantage. There's, there, there's no incentive for it. So unl again, unless someone's going to be super militaristic, uh, it, it, it tends to move in this, in this passive direction. And, you know, here to be yeah, honest, so, 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 I have so, sometimes so what you're saying is the problem with beyond earth and rising tide is it doesn't buy into manifest destiny. <laughs> yeah. 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 It needed, you know what? It needed a more 19th century imperialism. It really did.
that's really what but the whole idea is, right? That's what the Forex model has been for the longest time. And we did a show on Forex, you know, a few months ago where we talked about the, how this yeah. was a problem, how all these games had this same idea of, you know, expanding into the wasteland and it's all the same idea. And here we are not you're Whoa, right. whoa, whoa. Are you about to say we were not internally consistent on Three Moves Ahead? <laughs> I am just throwing these comments back saying, look, this is uh, the Civ model, I think, is, I mean, this is the dominant Forex model that's out there. And I think that if you're going to make a Civ game, it's got to be pretty much true to that model. But, you know, it would be nice if Beyond Earth, if it intentionally made this choice, say, look, there's you can't take over everything. You've got to be strategic where you're placing your placement. And this has been an intentional design choice. I think I would have a lot more understanding and appreciation for it instead of, as you say, Rob, it turns out to just to be an accident based on all these other design choices coming together that i don't want to fight all of these stupid aliens forever the ai is not going to be hassling me or building up to my borders anyway and i can make two or four or five cities so why bother these three independent choices have led to a game design that gives up the idea of opening up the wasteland and civilizing the entire planet and putting it all under your boot heel uh, which every other Forex game does, and it just stumbled upon that completely accidentally through ham-handed poor game design choices. I, I think it's fine to have a variable throttle on expansion rates, yeah. and I think that's you know yeah. part of one of the mechanics to expanding your thing, and especially in historical contexts yeah. because it certainly makes sense of empires falling down. But in addition to having like interactivity issues, I think one of the things too is um, it needs to be viable to not necessarily grow wide, and I think... Beyonder sort of misses that because it's a little harder to sort of be viable and just growing tall. And Civ Five even has that to a certain problems. One of the things I still think Civ Four is one of the best design games of all time. Uh, one unit per tile, be damned. But one of the nice things about Civ Four is that no no building in the game cost maintenance, so it was viable to really put a, a your own halt on any expansion and just grow your city tall and have lots and lots of buildings within the one city and for it to be very very powerful and potent because it didn't cost maintenance in Civ Five and beyond earth most if buildings except for the ones that are supposed to make you money cost you money which makes it really hard to grow tall in in an unlimited fashion in particular in a situation in beyond earth where for the longest time running trade routes is not viable because they're just going to get pillaged by aliens anyway yeah. there you have to do a thing with the ultrasonic fence and pick a certain thing with uh, the quest decision so that your trade routes can no longer be pillaged now all of a sudden you can make more money from trade and and grow vertically that way but then at the same time, they changed Beyond Earth so that um, trade routes were limited per city. So your capital city might only be able to run two trade routes. And unless you build more cities, you can't get more trade routes. Whereas in Civ Five, you can have every single one of your trade routes come out of your capital. And so that sort of very tall, almost one you know, single city gameplay becomes more viable in Civ Five, And Beyond Earth can't quite do that. So you're forced to expand, but you're punished for expanding. Which is one of the reasons a lot of people complain that they spend most of Beyond Earth at negative unhealthiness, which, I mean, I always have a problem with that legitimately, but I think there's really that middle part of the game that everyone is going to be at negative health in Beyond Earth, which isn't fun. It doesn't feel good. You don't yeah. get to take advantage of your first science social policy that says you get 10% more science as long as you're healthy. It's just not viable to stay healthy all the time because you can't not grow, but growing punishes you. Or, or your entire game becomes about getting the next health building, which is generally how I end up solving this problem. Where yeah. it's like, I would just keep my eye on that gauge, and I'd be like, well, starting to get unhealthy. So, click, 
even though I don't want this technology, in 25 turns, I desperately need to be able to build the next level hospital, whatever well, it may be. Absolutely. And for me, I'm always getting limited by the local happiness in a city because it can't exceed the population size. And then I'm looking for sources of global happiness, which is why I always go prosperity every single game. Because Mind Over Matter gives you seven health and then... Udomania at the end reduces your unhealthiness by 15%. And for me, that's just, just required to be able to grow in an appreciable rate. And I don't like being feeling like I'm forced to go down there. Yeah. You know, it's, this, is, this is interesting. Wow, it's like the, the real conversation all happens in the last 20 minutes of the show. Yeah, so the other thing I've, I've, I've wondered is like... So years ago, when I first reviewed Civ Five, I said it always felt like this weirdly recession-era Civ, <laughs> where it's a Civ that's all about, like, oh, you can't have the, both those things. You can't have guns and butter. You can't have, like, culture and, and a strong military. You can't, you can't expand, do this. You can't do that. It's, it's all about forcing you to make these choices. Uh, it, it's sort of the, we're going to take the, uh, the, the, the oft-quoted, overly-quoted Sid Meier maxim of, you know, the game is a series of interesting choices. We're just, gonna, we're just going to force you to make choice after choice. Uh, because we have to solve this problem that I'm not necessarily sure was all that big an issue. I loved Civ Four more than I ever loved Civ Five. I respected Civ Five as a design, but I never loved it the way I loved Civ Four. But really, when I think about some of my favorite memories of Civ games over the course of the entire series, a lot of it goes back to Civ Two for me because I remember these Titanic clashes mm -hmm. of these huge empires, and it was a lot of fun. Like, yes, it created a problem where if you hadn't expanded successfully through the early game into the mid game. You just kind of eventually became a smaller empire and had a really hard time staying in the game. But I was actually I was actually okay quitting games of Civ. You know what I mean? Like when I had a sense that like there was there was no way forward. I I had I had reached a fail state. I was not going to be able to progress. I was okay quitting out on a game of Civ. But what I got in exchange for that was these really exciting, like, eight, 1800s all the way to the end, uh, just slugging matches uh, between, like, great empires and launching these, these huge invasions and, and people getting ripped to shreds. And I really, really enjoyed having that, having that freedom, but also the fact that it meant there were a few other factions playing that same game with me, that we had to go eventually determine who was going to win on the battlefield. It was going to have to be this, you know, us versus them clash. And because civilization ever since then has been increasingly about eliminating the, the overwhelming power of uh, of, of large empires that allowed them to dominate games because every civilization has sort of tried to ha has tried to sort of reduce that and make it more and more viable to become become a small sieve. Uh, it's I think cr it, it's fed, it's fed into this problem of well now everyone's picking different game strategies uh, and if I'm sitting there wanting to have these great late game clashes. Uh, they're just not happening because there aren't enough people pursuing them. Uh, and even if you know, and and even if you're pursuing a different strategy, there's just not there's just not that incentive to go out and rough the other guy up. So your complaint is that uh, rapid expansion plus military not being the only option is a bad thing. Sorry, I'm being facetious. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's that I think the I think the ills that came with that. Being sort of a yes. dominant strategy in civilization were overstated. 
I, mm-hmm. I feel like it actually wasn't as bad for Civ as it, it, it's. It, it's sort of like it was. It, we, we must eliminate this from the game. We we this is this is a this is a bad. Uh, the the way this the way that this game comes together uh, is bad. We can't. We're forcing people down a, a line of play that is not fun, or we're or we're taking certain strategies out of out of play. So we have to fix that. And I guess it's it's sort of like we like w- with Civ Five, we hit a point of you're perhaps overly curing a problem that was not that serious. I definitely think that was very true at release. I, I found that the balance in Civ Five, that the penalties for expansion at release were very very harsh and it made the game very unfun i do like the current state of balance in civ 5 but it took yeah. it took many years and many patches and two expansions to get to the yeah. point where it's it's feeling okay now and well, beyond earth isn't there yet beyond earth has uh sorry brave new world mm-hmm. um creates all these they were they were always there in civilization to an extent but i feel like in brave new world uh to give you an example the tourism uh battle Right, like you, you need to sort of one of the the culture victory now also involves uh, sort of dominating the the cultural the the the, the tourist uh, economy of mm-hmm. the world. You have to become a destination. But if someone else is also getting a lot of tourists, they become a natural rival. So you can sort of see where someone has become a a major rival for your chosen victory condition, and in. Brave New World, there is a way to solve that. It, it creates a it creates a source of direct conflict. The same thing happens over city states, right? Where like mm-hmm. you will have people like start like realizing, I'm sick of always like fighting with you to try to maintain the favor of the city state. Uh, so instead of letting you just poach these guys, I'm just going to come and kill you. There are all these ways by the end of like Brave New World that even if you're not running a domination strategy, there were reasons to go out and threaten and bully and attack other players. You get to Beyond Earth, and I think this is why people said it was just like Civ Five. I feel like it felt like vanilla Civ Five in terms of you're all very constrained, and a lot of the uh, paths to victory actually encourage you to be really passive and uh, playing solitaire, basically. Absolutely. You want to get your core set of buildings or cities up and running so that you can generate enough science and then eventually enough production to complete whatever your victory condition is. And there's not that interactivity. I think if Rising Tide had done a revamp over victory conditions, I think it would have been uh, one of the most stunning expansions to a game ever, because I do think there's a lot of positive stuff. The new diplomatic module... Um, uh, system is fantastic. There's a lot of things that have definitely been improved in Rising Tide, but without an overhaul over Rising, uh, the, the the victory conditions, it's still, yeah, it's not interactive. The only non-interactive victory condition in Civ Five is the science of victory, and it requires you to sort of be good at all the things and also not get destroyed by your opponents. Um, and because uh, much of the way that you get science in Civ Five is through friendship agreements and research agreements, it's it's interactive in a different way. So I think yeah. all the victory conditions in Civ Five work really well for being interesting, and none of them in Beyond Earth are interesting. Save, but you know, domination, which I guess is always going to be fun to go and do some warfare. Yeah. Um, so so I don't know. Like so so Quill, that's where you, where you've come out on on uh, Rising Tide, uh, Troy. Like what, in in the end, like what what kind of recommendation do you do you give with, with Rising Tide? 
so much of it is still very beyond Earthish. I don't think this is going to turn anybody into a convert if they did not like Beyond Earth to begin with. If you're already a fan, you're going to buy this and you're going to be hooked on it. It's going to be okay. It doesn't make anything in Beyond Earth worse. <laughs> And it makes some things like diplomacy much, much better. Uh, is this the expansion that will turn people to make it a must-play uh, strategy game? I don't think it's quite there yet. It does show a lot of promise, and I hope they do have a little bit more aggressive patch update thing. I mean, I'm kind of biased because of where we work, but the, because of where I work, we tend to be very aggressive in our DLC and patch uh policies um it'd be nice if 2k uh and for access were, were able to do that now, they're working with levels of budget that we don't at paradox but i think this is a game that could actually be greatly improved by having more updates and more feedback um i think the diplomacy rethink shows that there's quite a lot of creative strategic talent still on the Firaxis civ team um, so I kind of hope they come up, they announce the new expansion quick and get it out by summer and they fix the victory conditions. Yeah. I've often made the case that the, the Paradox development studio model of coming out with a big patch slash content expansion every four to eight months for a game is actually a really sweet spot. Um, you know, a lot of people will make the case like they, they if looking at buying the games for the first time. They're like, oh, it's got all this DLC. It's clearly a money grab. And it's like, no, if you enjoy the game, you so look forward to those content releases every four to eight months. It's fantastic. Heck, I'm a big fan of The Sims and I will buy every Sims expansion that there is um, and give EA, evil EA, all my money because I look forward to the extra content because it's fun and I enjoy the game. And a lot of people like Civ Five and Beyond Earth and would be happy to see more frequent updates. But again, I think there's a sort of a uh, sort of an executive management layer decision that doesn't doesn't mesh right with a strategy game. It might work great with other types of game, but I think strategy games need to see most of their development happen after a release in a weird way. You know, I don't know, because for me, I look at this, Fraxis has been doing this for a long time. Generally, it's worked out pretty well. Uh, Beyond Earth just remains a, a uniquely troubled uh, a troubled game for them. So I, I, I do think it like something does probably need to change here, and I, I would hope that there is both one more expansion and that it's a pretty significant overhaul. Uh, but you know, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I'd say, well, this is this is like the, their their development model is flawed. Usually, it produces pretty great results. Shift uh, five was terrible at release. It was mm. awful. Nearly unplayable from literally like a memory leak standpoint, and balance was just miserable. Ah, I, yeah, I railed against though. it a lot, and now it's one of my favorite games. That's but true, I didn't mean but, to cut you off. Well, just yeah, but agree, hang on. But. but but yeah, but then they also still did that uh, via the model of major like content expansions, mm -hmm. like where there is, you know it's pretty much like a new box product. Yes, absolutely, and I really do hope there's another expansion from Beyond Earth because I would love to see it become one of those great games that ten years from now yeah. show up on those you know top fifty lists. And I don't think it's there yet. But I think it could be if they can continue to get support. Yeah, that's so. And this is this is I this is one of those shows I come to an ambivalent ending with mm. because I actually really like what Rising Tide does to Beyond Earth. 
I really do. Like it, there's there's a lot more ways to personalize a faction. Uh, I think the floating cities are, are a nifty idea. The things I don't like about it are the things I didn't like in Beyond Earth, and that's frustrating to sort of be like, well, you got a lot. There's a lot more cool stuff happening in this game, but it's still the same game. And so I think Beyond Earth kind of does need that um, Brave New World level expansion where it's really just fundamentally rethinking about like fundamentally rethinking how a lot of the uh, paths to victory and late game dynamics uh, come together. So I do hope they, they don't give up on this one. And I do like this makes beyond earth a better game. Oh yeah. It is more fun to play it with, with rising tide. And I like, I was playing civilization five, not that long ago. I have been enjoying my time with civilization beyond earth, rising tide, more than I was enjoying playing Civ Five. Now that could be I've just put a lot of time into Civ Five. I might be a little over it. Nevertheless, right now, like if I'm going to load up any Civ, it's probably going to be Rising Tide. It's new. It's it's fun. There's a lot of cool stuff here. Uh, I just wish it made Beyond Earth more of a game I could happily recommend you get into, rather than just saying, "Well, if you already have, if you already have Beyond Earth, this is a no-brainer." Yeah, Rising so. Tide is is a great expansion that dramatically improves Beyond Earth. I, I don't think it I, I think it still needs a little bit more, but it is a very good expansion. And it did bring a lot of really good things to the table. I can't say that it's bad. But I still prefer Civ Five at this point, even though I've played it uh I don't know, like eight hundred hours more than I have Beyond Earth. I still look forward to playing Civ Five more. Yeah. All right, that will do it for this week's episode of Three Moves Ahead, which is produced by Michael Hermes and hosted by the Idle Thumbs Network. Uh, you can learn more about the show or discuss this episode with our community by visiting our website at threemovesahead.net. Troy. And another reminder to please contribute to our Patreon if you've liked what you've heard here tonight. Donations have been coming in fairly strong for our first week, and we appreciate it. Our first uh, stretch goal stretch goal target uh, is the $1,500 a month mark. We're about a third of the way there, which is great. Uh, but we will keep producing free content probably for the rest of our lives. Uh, but your uh, appreciation and your, your appreciation of our work and your support of it uh, is very welcome. So you can contribute to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash 3MA. We'd also appreciate it if listeners would rate and review us on iTunes, which helps us grow the show and provides us useful feedback. Uh, you can follow Three Moves Ahead on Twitter, where we are at 3MA. You should also cruise over to idlethumbs.net, home of the Idle Thumbs Network, to check out the rest of the great shows we do there. Uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of Three Moves Ahead. Uh, until then, thank you so much, Quill, for joining us tonight, and uh, Troy for, for uh, hopping on the call as well. Thanks for having me. And if everyone wants to watch me Let's Play some Civ Five or Beyond Earth, you can follow me at YouTube.com slash Quill18. For Through Z, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.